Coming to you from an abandoned lighthouse on the sea. The horror. <laughs> it's the little podcast of horrors with James, Christina, and Chris. Welcome to Little Podcast of Horrors, episode 14. I'm Chris. I'm Christina. I'm james so i guess so james is going to be giving the story today yes <laughs> this is awkward <laughs> I know, he's just like i'm like i'm waiting for my segue okay sorry <laughs> Ladies We're professionals and here. I need a transition. You're right. I'm sorry. Ladies and gentlemen, sit down <laughs> and let James David Panetti weave his story of weird, sciencey things. And now, here is James. Here I am. Hi, Hi everybody. How's everybody <laughs> doing? So. Uh, for those who have listened to past episodes, and this isn't your first time, uh, recently we talked about the world ending in 2012. Oh, wait. What's everybody drinking? Well, I, I have been in need of, of, of lots of coffee today. So my second round, I've been having my, my second round of, uh, coffee today. Nice. Nice. Myself caffeinated. Cool. I am having, once again, one of my favorites, Old Granddad Bourbon. If you're looking for a bourbon that kicks you right there in the happy places, have yourself a glass of Old Granddad. You can rely on Granddad to kick you in the happy places. That's right. <laughs> Thanks, Granddad. See you in court. Oh my god. I'm drinking uh water because I have to drive my son to a slumber party. So okay. So I'm <laughs> I'm the drinker today. That's that's yep. great. Way to go, me. All righty. I'll anyway. have one next time, Chris. All right, fantastic. All right. <laughs> and now back to James. Okay, so just to refresh the memories, when we were talking about the world ending in 2012, uh we touched on christina you look like you're about to say something i was gonna say episode 12 right oh so yeah. for those who haven't listened to it they can go back it's episode 12 there we go okay sorry, episode go 12 about 2012 yeah Perfect. uh yeah so <laughs> so when we were talking about the world in 2012 we briefly talked about the montauk project or montauk uh m-o-n-t-a-u-k if you want to go googling it but um the Montauk Project is all about these happenings at uh, a real-life place called Camp Hero. You can go visit it today. And uh, if you recall, it's the, the place that was um, uh, basically like Stranger Things is, is heavily based on the Montauk Project and Camp Hero. Uh, we aren't really talking about the Montauk Project today, but file that away in the back of your head because it's all going to relate. Okay. But when we were talking about uh, the world in the year 2012, and when we were specifically talking about the Montauk Project, 
Um, well, so if you remember the context, uh, I, I was explaining that um, there were claims at Camp Hero that they had uh, worked out some time travel, but they were never able to time travel past 2012. Right. Okay. So when I was talking about the Montauk project, there was a quick drop about the Philadelphia experiment, and then we moved on. Today, we're talking about the Philadelphia experiment. Awesome. So buckle in, folks, because this one's a doozy. <laughs> Click. <Okay. laughs> so uh, we're going to basically have two dudes kind of as the centerpiece of the story. One is uh, Carl M. Allen. And uh, our boy Carl was an ex-merchant uh, mariner. So merchant navy and all that jazz. And in 1955, um, well, before before I run off with that, so so you know, merchant marines, he was, you know, on ships out in the water and all that kind of jazz, right? Okay, so 19 in 1955 uh, is kind of where the ball gets rolling here. Um, Alan sends uh, this anonymous package to an author who is going to be our second sort of main character here by the name of Morris K. Jessup. So uh, Jessup's claim to fame is uh, he, he was a, an, an astronomer, uh, you know, like master's in astronomy. So like, you know, real deal scientist, not a, well, you know, the, somebody with some legitimacy for a change, right? He wasn't but, like uh, Nostradamus with his long beard reading the stars. <laughs> right, so. right, 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 right. <laughs> I got right. my certificate in astronomy from Udemy. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, so this is a kind of a, a case of an actual, like, you know, certified astronomer, you know, being in play here. So, but his claim to fame was um, he offered, he authored a book titled The Case for the UFO, Unidentified Flying Objects. And sort of uh, his specialization as an astronomer was um, he was kind of the go-to guy for theorizing how UFOs might be able to propel themselves. So, you know, cool. pro propulsion, possible propulsion science for UFOs. Okay, so Alan sends this anonymous package to Jessup. And these guys don't know each other. You know, Jessup doesn't know Alan from Bob. And again, this is an anonymous package. But uh, since this anonymous package marked Happy Easter <laughs> to the U.S. Office of Naval Research. Sorry, so he mm -hmm. didn't send it to Jessup. He sends it to the to the U.S. Office of Naval Research. Wow. But Happy inside, Easter, guys. The Navy. Yeah. Here's some eggs, guys. Go find them. So inside, so inside this Happy Easter box is Jessup's book, uh, The Case for the UFO. Oh. I'm just going to slip this in right here. I don't know <laughs> I'm a big fan. <laughs> so why in the world did Alan anonymously send a copy of Jessup's book to the you know, Office of Naval Research? Well, when, uh, when, when the Naval Research Office opens it, uh, it's not just you know any old copy of the book. There's apparently a whole bunch of handwritten notes throughout the margins of the book. Oh. In three shades of ink. Three, three shades, shades. Of, three shades of blue ink three shades okay. of crazy so so each uh <laughs> each different shade color of ink or whatnot represents a different uh person's thoughts 
So we basically have three people jotting notes down in in this book. Do they have a key, Uh, like a ledger that says this is so-and-so's notes? No, that's actually part of the problem. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. But all all that you could tell was like, there's three people talking and, you know, kind of have fun figuring out who the three people are. But um, it's basically just throughout the margins here are these notes that are detailing this debate between the three people. And uh, at this point, uh, they could only identify uh, one of the people as apparently have, uh, going by the name of Jemi, J-E-M-I, Jemi. Okay. Um, all three of them, however, refer to themselves as gypsies. That's not a PC see, term. Yeah, I, I, and I don't, I, <laughs> I'm under the impression they don't mean literal gypsies. It's just kind of like they're... <laughs> their how their their group name i guess their band yeah. name if you will <laughs> i'm kind of curious is it is this really three people or is it just one person who has spent a lot of time with themselves and yes. nobody else <laughs> that is that is uh that is one of the questions to be raised so anyway this uh debate between the three gypsies uh throughout the margins are commenting on jessup's ideas about flying saucer propulsion and aliens, and uh, they also expressed a concern that Jessup was too close to discovering their technology. Uh, Oh, okay. So in addition to the three people not being clearly identified, to ramp the difficulty up even further, where the notes were full of just weird uses of capitalization, you know, I'm assuming things being capitalized that shouldn't be and things that should be capitalized not being just kind of like random capitalization and punctuation. Like a code? Possibly. Uh, uh, To many, it it apparently just seemed like barely intelligible rambling. (laughs) Which I would say is like, isn't that typical? Yeah. Because like, you know, if you notice, if you've got your, your crazy uncle you know, going on about conspiracy theories on Facebook, it's always like the grammar is a wreck. Well, yeah, that, that just seems to be like a a, a, a trait that has to you gotta you gotta stick with the theme. We jeepsies, you know you're sad, man. <laughs> He's too close. He's too close to this. Yes, I know it. I know it. <laughs> Shut up, mod. Shut your mouth. We're having a theoretical discussion on alien promotion here. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, all of these various notes detailing the the, the debate between these three dudes drop indirect references to the Philadelphia experiment. And this is what first raises interest into it. Okay, so fast forward a year and... um, in January of 1956, Carl, Carl writes to Jessup again, but this time, well, not again. This is the first time he writes directly to Jessup, but he writes directly to Jessup, sends the duty letter, and writes under a pseudonym of, instead of, uh, instead of Carl M. Allen, he identifies himself as Carlos Miguel Allende. For whatever Sweet. reason. Smooth, yeah. Wow. I just it's just like he puts on a big black mustache. Hello, no. <laughs> Don't like, you totally just different. you look is that you, Phil? No. <laughs> is that your Phil? 
Calamari. <laughs> what? No, take the mustache off, Bill. We all, we all know it's you. No, it is not. <laughs> <laughs> so Carlos slash Carl uh, writes Jessup to warn him that he needs to refrain from further investigating UFO levitation. And he goes on to share a story on quote-unquote dangerous science uh, that was based on Albert Einstein's unpublished theories. And uh, Carlos claims that a scientist by the name of Franklin Reno puts those unpublished theories into practice during the Philadelphia experiment. Uh, at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard in October of 1943. So again, everything keeps pointing back to this Philadelphia shipyard. So to learn, we learn more about Alan at this point. And uh, Alan, you know, I mentioned, in, you know, merchant, uh, merchant Marines, merchant Navy, uh, you know, merchant ships. He was uh, specifically served aboard the USS Firaseth, uh in Philadelphia. While he was aboard the Firaseth, uh, he claims that he witnessed another ship, a Navy ship, that was visible from his vantage point standing on the deck of the Firaseth. The other ship, as he was watching it, vanished for several minutes before reappearing in the shipyard where it had been. Okay. Uh, and then uh, Alan goes on to, to talk about in this letter what happened to the ship's crew when it reappears, which we'll go into all sorts of detail about that here shortly. So this gets Spoiler just... alert. It, it, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't go well for them. <laughs> they, they were just, they were partying, you know, just having booze. It was great. They were dancing <laughs> girls. And it was like, wow, what happened while they were gone? For <laughs> So anyway, this gets Jessup's interest. And uh, Jessup writes back to Carlos and requests more information. Alan replies, or... Alende replies that one his his own memory would have to be recovered, which what more Wait. on that there will be more on that. But for now, like what what do you mean recovered? Okay, you're the you're the one that brought this up, bro. Like. Right, right, right. <laughs> so instead, uh, Alende references. A Philadelphia newspaper article on the incident, which spoiler alert um, doesn't seem to exist, okay. uh, but but he he claims there was one, and he references it. Okay, so Jessup is now interested, and then in 1957, the Office of Naval Research reaches out to Jessup, <gasps> which is a. Uh, not really the most one might not think this is the most welcoming thing ever because this is almost uh you know akin to having like the men in black show up to ask yeah. questions right the office the of naval research right right the, yeah the navy men in black <laughs> so so the uh so so the onr office of naval research uh invites jessup to come pay a visit 
so of note, the Office of Naval Research is relatively newly formed at the time. It's it's a new it's a newish entity, and uh, though Anar is in charge of Navy research and special projects, which is why you might be a little nervous mm-hmm. if they come knocking on your door. Special projects, <laughs> <laughs> right? So uh, they show, <laughs> excuse me, they show Jessup the annotated copy of his book from the, you know, Happy Easter box. And Jessup notices that, hey, these notes in the margin really resemble this Alinde's guy's handwriting that mm-hmm. I got in my letter. Okay, so pause for a sec to address what Chris was saying. It, fast forward 12 years, we later learn that Alan would fess up and claim that he authored the annotations, all three of them. He was oh. all three people. <laughs> Nailed and it. he did it. He claimed to have done it, not because it was fabricated, but to scare the hell out of Jessup. Because remember, in the letter, he's warning Jessup, like, you're getting too close, you need to back off. So oh, yeah. he okay. just say he, he did, which again, he like he didn't send it to Jessup, he sent it to the... <clears throat> Anyway, that, apparently, that really this is all his ways. master plan. This is all his master, you know, complex plan to scare Jessup out of, because I guess he really cared about this author. Okay. <laughs> Secret love. <laughs> right. Secret lovers experimenting <laughs> with alien propulsion. So, I'm wondering the three. Okay, so it's before we find out that he's the author of all three. Did he try to make the handwriting look different or was he just like, let me just choose a different shade of blue and that'll get him. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't seen any images of the notes myself. And I, the only description that I've picked up from the, the like multiple sources as I was looking at it, talks about mm-hmm. how they're different colors or different shades, but not, and there's no comments mm-hmm. on the handwriting. Look the he's just so. at the store <laughs> and he's like, you know what? gonna be so stupid it's brilliant blue (laughs) red and black good luck finding out the truth (laughs) so anyway so let me unpause from that you know 12 years ahead uh no one knows that so we're we're still operating on a you know three three mysterious uh note takers in the book but oddly similar to Alinde's handwriting. Okay, so Justice at the ONR, and then uh, uh, this captain, uh, Captain Sidney Sherby, and Commander George W. Hoover, Hoover uh, both take interest. It's like, it has got their attention, which again, depending on your point of view, it might be a little alarming that you're now getting like people, you know, that high up the chain going, oh, yeah. really? <laughs> So, uh, so Hoover kind of dismisses it later because he he basically said that that uh, since he was the special projects officer, like he had to investigate. Like as soon as people start talking about that, it technically falls under his umbrella, and he has to like check off the box to say he look into it. But he says that he found no substantive evidence evidence of anything weird. So of okay. course he of course he did, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, Hoover discusses the book's notes uh, with the then president of a Vero Manufacturing Corporation uh, by the name of Austin N. Stanton. 
And this guy just pops up and then disappears. The, the only reason I bring him up is because Stanton, in turn, takes interest himself. And he produced uh, mimographed co- copies of the book and the notes within it, and then publishes it uh, through the ONR, which becomes known as the Vero edition. So that's that's only important to say that uh, at this point, the topic could have died down. But since like this guy, for whatever reason, decided to 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 publish not only the book, but the notes within it through the <laughs> Office of Naval Research, like gets its attention again. Like here yeah. it is back to the surface. I'll not let this die. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I shall show you the truth. I shall hold on to it. But uh, but in this edition, uh, the, the two other speakers are sort of identified. There's a Mr. A, supposedly Alan, which later we learn absolutely Alan, as are the other two, and a Mr. B. <laughs> so anyway, all this just to say, like, the story now has new life. Okay, so... All that's to lay the groundwork of, of how this got into the public eye to begin with. So now let's talk about the Philadelphia experiment itself. Um, now, what's going to be fun about this little tale is um, there are uh, a lot of versions of a lot of different parts of the story. So what I have tried to do here is kind of uh, merge together um, what the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Basically what the consensus seems to be. But uh, if you go down this rabbit hole, you're going to find other versions, a bunch of different people involved in telling the story. So, you know, you get your various differences of reports. So I, I will try to account for that. But nonetheless, uh, if you go down this rabbit hole yourself, you're going to find details that vary from what I'm telling you. So just, you know, heads up. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to focus on the ones that seem to carry the most popularity or credence or whatever. Okay, so the experiment. So the experiment, the Philadelphia experiment, took place either in summer or October of 1943, depending on who you're talking to okay but 1943 everybody agrees on that part mm-hmm. so 1943 testing begins on what's called project rainbow oh yeah sailor sailors <laughs> in the rainbows you know it's a good time so <laughs> so one version of, of the story um basically says that project rainbow is based on uh, Einstein's, when you, we were talking about Einstein's unpublished theories, this is based on Einstein's unified field theory, which to not do it justice and oversimplify, oversimplify everything, basically the essence of it is uh, Einstein was trying to describe how it might be possible to take the electromagnetic, uh, electromagnetic field and a gravitational field and unite them into one field, hence unified field theory. So Project Rainbow is trying to do this. Uh, So researchers, and I say researchers because we have no names for these researchers, uh, (laughs) but researchers believed that this unified single field would allow electrical generators 
to bend light around an object, therefore rendering it invisible. Now, think about when this is taking place. 1943, what happens to be going on in the rest of the world? World War II. The Nazis will never see us coming. Yes. <laughs> the idea of rendering something invisible is kind of of particular use right now. Mm -hmm. Okay. However, there's a so a second version of the story um, is similar, but basically says that the researchers were attempting uh, magnetic and gravitational measurements of the seafloor. Uh, something related to uh experiments to they were trying there's they were doing this somehow to try to discover anti-gravity and apparently it was derived from sort of a hans kommler's uh, if i'm pronouncing that right of nazi fame his experiments he was trying to discover anti-gravity so they are trying to do the same thing but again the common thing between both versions is that researchers are trying to screw around with gravitational and electromagnetic forces at the same time <laughs> okay. Regardless of which version you're following, the USS Eldridge, which is sitting in Philadelphia Naval Shipyard, is rigged with equipment, so these generators and whatnot, while it's docked there in the shipyard. So, one test, the first test, renders the Eldridge completely invisible. So, Test one, mission accomplished. Kick on the generators, Success. vanishes from sight. All right, let's go attack some Nazis. Sweet. <laughs> so, I'll say. Okay. So, witnesses reported that the ship glowed with a greenish-blue light and vanished and left behind a greenish fog where it had been. It comes back into visibility, and sailors come out of the experiments with severe nausea. Um, so, but they come back, so that's good. Well, I mean, they didn't leave. By at least we're assuming, we're assuming, given what we know so far, they didn't leave. This is about visibility, right? They just the invisibility turn... just makes them nauseated. Yes. Yes. Uh, so some reports refer to this event and uh, some other details about it um, as uh, as I originally said, the first experiment. Um, others is just one experiment. But uh, I'm going to go with uh, there were two experiments, uh, train of thought. Because the second one is fun. Okay, so for <laughs> first experiment, ship disappears, come back. I go, yay, we did it in visibility. Let's do it again. <laughs> this okay. is gonna be so much fun guys <laughs> here we go well you got to try more than once you don't yeah. just go okay we're done yeah that's <laughs> let's, just, let's that's not how you everywhere. do a science <laughs> all right so test two the ship disappears some say for hours and then reappears again the same spot with some of the sailors' bodies merged and fused into the metal structures and bulkheads of the ship at oh the molecular oh level. My God, they were merged with the ship? Merged. Yes. <laughs> so specifically, like um, 
you'd have a sailor that was standing on one deck. He comes back a deck lower and then merged into the floor of the wall. Oh. So basically, the the assumption here is that during the disappearance reappearance, they were like moving through walls and floors, and you don't want to be halfway when you come back. Are there any audio recordings of this incident? Not that I found. I just Thank- want to be like, thankfully, you know, you think about it, like, hey, God, we're mer- we're going through walls. This is amazing. Hey, Tom, you might want to not be going that way when we re. <laughs> And uh, so, so remember, Alan's one of our eyewitnesses because he's on an, he's on a ship nearby, right? He's watching this happen from his ship. Uh, so, mm-hmm. I mean, he does say in his witness accounts that like you can you can hear the commotion when it comes back from where he's standing on his ship. So there, there are. To... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to ask: Does his ship try to communicate with them at all, or? Oh no, and then they had nothing to do with each other. They were just kind of totally unrelated. So, yeah. Uh, one sailor in particular, like like I said, appears a deck below where he originally stood, but that guy has his hand embedded in the steel hull. For example, uh, other sailors don't merge with the ship, but they rematerialize inside out. What the hell? Oh. <laughs> Yeah. Why? <laughs> uh, others uh, reappear, but th- but from that point they phase in and out of visibility, so they like reappear, then disappear, and reappear, and they're kind of, I guess, halfway. Oh, and gosh. then yet others just never reappeared at all. Some of them just were never came back. There are shadow people now. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we have shadow people mm-hmm. they went Lizard on to stand around in dimension. people's bedrooms <laughs> so, so well, once standing in your bedroom it's a it's a sailor <laughs> of course it is <laughs> <laughs> that just kind of explained everything oh my gosh i like this <laughs> so uh so the ones that uh didn't suffer any of those side effects uh have mental breakdowns uh, <laughs> Because I mean, Pansies, no. <laughs> <laughs> excuse me. So, so yeah, a lot come back with mental breakdowns, and uh, and and some of which lead on to like ongoing psychological disorders. Because of sure. course it did. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, and and then some others came back with bird marks. Uh, so okay. Alan writes that most of the sailors didn't survive, uh, and then. Again, he he tells some additional individual uh, occurrences. One sailor, he watched one sailor walk through his quarters wall in full sight of his family. And then vanish. And never came back? Correct. Just walked through the wall and that's the last you saw of them. So uh, even when they were back, they were still just like not really back because he was with his family, right? So he says, "I was a little confused about that too, and I couldn't, I couldn't find out the details." So he talked. He, he says, "Walked through his quarters walls." So I'm, I'm, I was assuming his personal quarters on the ship, but his family yeah. was there. So maybe they were visiting. I don't know. 
I mean, it is like just in the shipyard. It's not out at sea or anything. So I guess that could have happened, but hmm. take that as you will. Okay. Uh, and uh, Alan also uh, wrote an account that he watched two sailors just simply burst into flames and they continued to burn for 18 days. What the? What? F- what? Yep. So choose your favorite way to go. Were they screaming I, the entire 18 days? I hope God. not. Yeah, I was going to yeah, say, no. I doubt it. How does anything burn <laughs> for 18 days? There's not, what, what's burning? Know. How do people walk through walls? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I like how it's the, the fire. That's the, that's the, that's the line. I'll, I'll take vanishing. <laughs> but <laughs> Hey man, don't judge me, okay? Walking and, through walls uh, is one thing, but just endless burning, like, no, I'm, no. And uh, so, you know, you're talking about that, the things continue, like it's not just when they immediately come back, they kind of continue for a bit. So yeah. to, to with that in mind, uh, Alan also claims that he saw a group of these sailors uh, having a bar fight at a nearby bar, and they just vanished in oh, the middle well, of the bar the fight. To, that's the way to get out of it. Right. <laughs> you know what so, i'm gonna kick the shit out of you <laughs> what the hell where'd it go <laughs> just practicing for nazi engagement mm-hmm. so uh so some claim that from that point on the navy modified the experiment to just focus on stealth technology like being invisible to radar that's good enough <laughs> let's stay in the sandbox hey guys let's uh (laughs) let's tone this down a little bit because i've seen people like totally burst into flames and vanish and turn inside out maybe maybe we're going a little too far with this i don't know we're getting a lot of calls from families so we effed up guys we let's mm -mm. so it gets weirder How so, does it get weirder? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so some accounts, you know, more or less stop there, but there's a number of other accounts that, let's see how to put this. So up to this point, we're talking about turning to visible and then coming back to visibility. The ship hasn't mm-hmm. actually gone anywhere, supposedly. Well, however... Uh, given some very strange eyewitness reports, uh, it seems that the Eldridge didn't just turn invisible. It teleported Mm -hmm. and went back in time. I mean, sure. (laughs) Where'd it go? Like, what time? It went to Norfolk, Virginia, 200 miles away, uh, 10 minutes prior to when it left. Oh, okay, well. I mean, still time travel. Just a little <laughs> short trip back in time. Right, <laughs> Very right. Short. And, and the reason, uh, so uh, the the reason we we have that those conclusions is because there are supposedly eyewitnesses from Norfolk who say they saw this navy ship appear out of nowhere. Okay. Uh, for X amount of time, depending on the version of the story. And then vanish as mysteriously as it came, and their accounts are ten minutes prior to when it left, unbeknownst to them. Okay. Okay. So 
With that in mind, some claim that the sailors who went insane did so because of the disorientation they suffered from the experience of being in a hyperspace bubble outside of space-time. So the brief moment that they were just outside of time before popping out 10 minutes earlier, it was just, you're not supposed to experience that and your brain goes bye-bye. So, eyewitness sports, right? So men, so, so this comes from supposedly that men that were aboard the SS Andrew Firaseth saw the Eldridge sit in Norfolk for a few minutes before it vanished okay. again. Uh, some claim it was as much as, yeah, and then some claim it was 10 minutes earlier than when it disappeared. So the Eldridge then reappears in Philadelphia shipyard from the very spot from which it had vanished. So with all this, um, you know, you, you, you'll note I've been saying, you know, some men, some sailors, some, you know, I'm not throwing some names. I've stopped throwing names at you. That's mm -hmm. because there are claims that uh, the ship's crew were brainwashed to maintain secrecy. Um, and so that you don't have a lot of like... I, I was lieutenant of such and such on ship such and such, and this is so that that's why you're not here. That because they were brainwashed. The ones that didn't are like the ones that didn't burst into flames and get merged into walls. I mean, the ones that those we didn't need to brainwash. Right, right, and and I am gonna bring up some specific sailors here in a minute, but for the most part, we kind of have a a lack of them supposedly for that reason and uh, by brainwashing uh one of the claims is like basically they're using the cia's mk ultra program to do the brainwashing oh okay okay now to add on board. Uh, yeah <laughs> you don't want to be on board <laughs> the last place not you want to be not that one <laughs> <laughs> and then uh just as a side note the gypsies who we later learn is alan mm -hmm. uh claimed that aliens made the ship vanish oh okay i'm gonna say Man. why blame on aliens what we can you know screw up ourselves yeah exactly come on okay so about that brainwashing our next character to show up on the scene is i am gonna try not to butcher this pronunciation al bilek b-i-e-l-e-k so Bilek pops up onto the scene in 1988, which of note is four years after the fictional movie, The Philadelphia Experiment, hit theaters. Okay. So 88, uh, Al is 57 at the time. He comes forward and claims that him and his brother were aboard the Eldridge during the experiment when they were both in their 20s. But... He had been brainwashed by MK Ultra techniques to forget. Wait, thankfully, oh, go ahead. Is that timing right? Hold on, it's 1988. He's 57. Yes. And the Philadelphia experiment happened in 1943. 40, yes. So that's 45 years later. But that doesn't. That he'd be a teenager. Yeah, maybe he's just really bad at math. <laughs> He's a or, liar. <laughs> or the time travel takes effect. Actually, oh shit! Actually, <laughs> actually, 
Right. Hold that thought. Okay. okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so he's, he's brainwashed by MK ultra techniques to forget, but he sees the movie and that triggers like a flood of all these memories coming back. Okay. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Al claims that his real name, after remembering, was actually Edward Cameron. And his brother was Duncan Cameron. Uh, so, fast forward a couple of years. In 1990, he tells his, his whole story at a, what's called the Mutual UFO Network Conference. So, during the conference, he claims that it was none other than Nikola Tesla who engineered the Eldridge's equipment to take the ship out of space time. And that Tesla's devices opened a wormhole to the future through which these two sailors specifically passed. And instead of coming back with the Eldridge merged into it, these guys get separated and land in Camp Hero in August 12 of 1983. Wait, okay. This is where I'm the math trouble. gets uh, okay, so, so, so let me <laughs> let, let, let me let me tie it together a little neater. Okay, so the Eldridge sitting in a Philadelphia shipyard, 1943, jumps yes. it jumps out of space-time mm-hmm. during so it comes back out it comes back into space time 10 minutes earlier with most of its crew minus two the two instead of going 10 minutes backward go forward are separated from the ship and landed camp heron in 1983 40 years later so they have traveled forward in time 40 years so of course camp hero is where the Montauk project happened. Okay, that's what I was going to ask because I was like, I'm getting confused with all these names. <laughs> right. Back to that one. Okay. It's a, it's a callback. <laughs> right. So the Cameron brothers, now that they're, you know, stranded in 1983, joined the Montauk project, which coincidentally had been born from the Philadelphia experiment. Uh, because both were screwing around with electromagnetic research. Mm-hmm. Did they, were they already in the, I mean, were they supposedly already in the midst of the, of this project when the brothers showed up? Because um, I remember in the story you talking about like portals and that sort of thing, yeah. which if they were already in the midst of doing that, maybe that's why they landed there. Because right. They, okay. Right. So that that is, I mean, I haven't seen that explicitly said, but it sure seems to be the case, since you know part of what they were doing was screwing with time. I'm just wondering if that's what caused them to come forward, like they they came through a portal, like well, you know, like these scientists, you know, in 1983 doing this project, and then two World War II soldiers just come popping through, like that's a whole lot better than what happened last week with big giant, you know, monstrous creatures. <laughs> With the Demogorgon. <laughs> With the Demogorgon. So I'll take right? the two sailors from World War II any day. <laughs> yeah. So to tie, to, to tie like three stories together, we got these two sailors from the Philadelphia experiment, jumped 40 years in the future, landed the pon- 
the Montauk project, which using time travel discovers they can't go forward past 2012. <laughs> well, or remember that other Arthur versions are they do go past 2012 but find nothing but the statue of a horse. Yeah. So it's it's turtles all the way down, man. So we, we've got an <laughs> overlap of of all three things. And the uh the uh it's whatever the, you want to call it trilogy. Yeah, as I was about to say it's the trilogy of what the hell. <laughs> <laughs> so uh just to, to mention as a side note, because this is gonna branch off into yet another story, but uh, our two sailors' adventures with the Montauk Project go on, and we'll. If you, I want to come back to this for yet another episode, because as I said the last time, I brought the Montauk Project up. It merits its own topic, but to give you a little, little spoilery, a little, a little, a uh, little sprinkle of what that's about. A teaser. The <laughs> the Montauk Project would go on to research space time and opening space time por- portals and they would do some crazy stuff like create what's called the montauk chair which without going into it the thing about the montauk chair is it grants whoever's sitting in it psychic powers i was gonna say three wishes <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> so there was a if, if you watch stranger things there was a very similar chair and that's what it was yeah inspired by oh, okay cool so that's the Philadelphia experiment, but let's come back to Jessup. What happened to our old boy Jessup? Because remember, he mm-hmm. was getting, yeah, he was visited by the ONR. He was getting warned, like you really should stop <laughs> looking into this. So let's 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 revisit old Jessup. So Jessup had, in the beginning, been out downright obsessed with Alan's claims. So he had gone on to gather as much evidence as he could possibly find. And remember, uh, you know, his, his book about UFOs, like he, he was a very well-published, well-regarded author. But after the ONR visited him, his uh, career just died. His reputation appeared to have been ruined. He he wrote additional books, but they just never got, uh, they, they never got legs in the market again. So that was basically the end of his publishing career. He got tied to some kooky shit. And so right. the community, science community was like, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so in 1958, uh, Jessup gave his research to a friend by the name of Ivan Sanderson. And the reason he does so is he asks Ivan to keep the research safe. And then, quote unquote, just in case something happens to me. Fast forward a year. And on April 19th of 1959, Jessup calls his friend Madsen Valentine, saying that he made a big, he, he has made a breakthrough in his findings. And he wants to meet with Valentine the next day to talk about it. The next day, April 20th, Jessup and Valentine do not meet because Jessup was funny. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yes. Yes. A 420. <laughs> because Jessup is found dead in his car <gasps> from carbon monoxide poisoning. Oh my goodness. A hose, a hose had been lodged in the exhaust pipes to force the gas into the interior. Mm-hmm. 
and then washcloths have been crammed along the windows to prevent fumes from escaping. So the, offic the officials claimed suicide, but no autopsy was ever performed. Mm -hmm. This is the end of Jessup's story. Oh, Jessup, I'm sorry. Yeah, man, that sucks. Okay, so of course we don't know what this research was or this breakthrough was. Nope. <laughs> that was the end of that. Because Valentine sure didn't find out. Yeah. <laughs> if he had made it to Valentine, we might have found out, but they, they got mm -hmm. him last minute. So uh, let's see. So let me give you, let me pause and give you my sources. And there's a reason for this. It'll be obvious in a minute. So, so I'm putting this together. I, uh, I pulled from Wikipedia on it, of course. Um, yeah. Also, a uh, uh, a couple of uh, uh, really good YouTube videos. One is entitled "The Experiment Gone Wrong: The Philadelphia Experiment" by Wildwood Video Archive, and then "The Philadelphia Experiment: The Truth About Invisibility, Teleportation, and Time Travel" by the Y Files, another great channel. Uh, and then there's two articles from all that's interesting. Uh, so one, and this is why I bring it out now. How the Philadelphia Experiment Became Famous Despite Never Happening by Kata Serena, who was a staff writer. And then um, Inside the Montauk Project, the U.S. military's alleged mind control program by Marco Margarita, who was also a staff writer. And uh, those two in particular, like not only staff writers, they also had like uh, additional people who would like go by and verify, you know, their mm -hmm. research stuff. The yeah. reason I... Uh, point to to i want to point to katie's article in particular because when i was reading her article um the top comments of course this is the internet take it as you will but the top comment submitted two years ago from now uh was by a user named reamberger if i'm pronouncing that right but this is interesting uh the the commenter says katie my late father was a u.s navy World War II veteran. He lived through some of the fiercest battles, including Midway and the Battle of the Bulge. He was on a ship that was adjacent to the Eldridge when the Philadelphia experiment commenced. <clears throat> he witnessed the ship completely disappear and reappear three hours later and heard the screams of the sailors that were literally fused into the ship. Yes, this really happened. Did the ship time travel? Probably not. That gave me chills. <laughs> right? I don't know if any of that is meaningful, but it gave me chills nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's why I brought it up. Unsettling. You know, that's why I brought it up, despite it being an internet comic, because it was just yeah. <sighs> Ooh. So uh, before I close out here, let me let me give you a, a fair shake to some of the some of the skeptical conclusions on this mm -hmm. so the, uh our main uh go-to person for this is a, a gentleman by the name of edward dudgeon who is a navy who was a navy electrician and he was a crew member on the uss engstrom in the summer of 43 so the engstrom engstrom the engstrom and the eldridge were often docked together so the the ship the crews of the two ships like intermingled rather often Mm -hmm. So he says that, yes, the Eldridge was indeed rigged up with the special generators, but 
not quite so exciting. Uh, he says the claiming what the so the Navy was experimenting. They were experimenting with the Eldridge and with generators they attached to it, but they weren't trying to make the ship invisible. Rather, they were trying to make sh- the ship disappear, but disappear to radar. What they were oh. doing was uh, uh, a process that's called degaussing the ship, mm-hmm. which involves sending uh, a bunch of high voltages through the structure of the ship. Uh, which can render the ship invisible to torpedoes from German U-boats. Well, that's still cool. (laughs) Right. Not Uh, as sexy, but still cool. (laughs) So his pet theory is he thinks that passersby, people aboard ships that were passing by at the time, might have overheard them talking about that and misunderstand what they meant by invisibility. Hmm. Uh, so he goes on to say that he thinks the disappearing bar fight was simply a matter of some rowdy sailors lips getting too loose when they were drinking saying too much that the public shouldn't be hearing and that they were escorted out the back of the bar hence disappeared Uh, yeah yeah he says that that the he goes on to say that the day of the alleged disappearance, the Eldridge actually just left the dock normally around 11 p.m. And that, but but he thinks that okay, so anyone who had gone looking for the ship, you know, who had seen it had been there the whole time, but had come back to look for it, you know, after 11 p.m. would see it was gone all of a sudden. So maybe that's where this came from, but it just you know floated off normally. Mm-hmm. Um, he verifies that the Eldridge did go to Virginia but and returned to Philadelphia the next morning, which you would think for 200 miles is a bit too quick. But his explanation is that uh, when it comes to making long trips like that and making them fast, the Navy actually has some access to special channels. And the one in particular is the Chesapeake-Delaware Canal, which you can look up on a map. It's kind of a straight line between Virginia and Philadelphia. So it cuts the trip down to six hours. Oh, wait, uh, but it went down. When did it leave, though? Not 11 p.m. and came uh, back the next morning. That's still more than six hours. Well, yeah, yeah, or yeah. 12 yeah, but, hours, really. It's both right. ways. But it, it's still faster than, than going the long way, which is the point. Not necessarily it was exactly six hours, but it was that was... uh the whole point being that if you're not accounting for that and you're expecting the ship to kind of go down the, you know, the Eastern seaboard that it's would never reach Philadelphia that quickly. Hence, like it had to have done some, some teleportation, which no, there's a canal that goes through the country. Instead, it's a little bit faster. Hmm. But fast but enough there's... to put you there 10 minutes before you left. Right. right i was like but people are still saying they saw them at a certain time and that they were in virginia and they were still in philadelphia indeed. or they had disappeared from philadelphia indeed. So. yeah you, you might be able to get there six hours faster but not 10 minutes before you left yeah okay i was like i still feel like it's too fast <laughs> right <laughs> um, that, that might be just a little too quick you know it's, it's like... still not it's still not adding up to me <laughs> right right well, keep that in mind. Uh, so some, some other uh, skepticism to, to give credence to. There's a historian by the name of Matt, Mike Dash who calls 
shenanigans on all this. And he stated that many of the authors who follow Jessup, uh, you know, Jessup having his own credence, but a lot of the authors that followed him and publicized stuff about experiment performed little, if any, research. And that other literature has come out since uh, has been criticized for dramatizing or embellishing in, in some details, or in some cases, just outright plagiarizing other books. Another thing to note is that Einstein never completed his unified field theory, hence it being unpublished. Mm-hmm. Uh, some fourth naval district personnel claimed that the whole thing was just a misunderstanding of normal research they performed during World War II at that shipyard. Uh, there's a dude by the name of, of Robert Gorman who wrote for Fate magazine. And this is the one I really want to point out. Uh, he states that Carlos Linde slash Carl Allen, Allen was in fact Carl Meredith Allen who had a history of psychiatric illness, hmm. which calls him to question. And again, this is where, it, indeed, you know, Alan comes back and later admits he made all three characters up, even though he justifies it as he's trying to scare Jessup. Mm-hmm. Uh, another fact is supposedly the Eldridge wasn't even commissioned until August of 43, and that it was in New York City until September of 43. Of course, October still comes after September, so... <laughs> uh, so a counterpoint to that is maybe the ship's logs were falsified. Then ONR itself made some statements to the Office of Naval Research. Okay. Uh, September 96, they come out and said, ONR has never conducted investigations on radar invisibility, either in 1943 or at any other time. Which, hey, Wait. they didn't say actual invisibility. Yeah, I'm like, you picked out the boring one. What the hell? Right? <laughs> Of course, say a little little suspect. Of course, they did. Uh, Then, in April of 1999, uh, some Navy vets who had served on the Eltridge told a Philadelphia newspaper that their ship never even left the port. And then, uh, for what it's worth, the Eldridge's complete World War II action report, including its time in the shipyard, is available on microfilm. So, if you so care to do so, you could go look at it yourself. Cool. So, let, uh, let's end this with some questions. Was Alan delusional? Uh, even Jessup in his later days would write him off. Mm-hmm. Or was Alan scapegoated? Was Dudgeon, our skeptic, was he correct? Or are his claims aiding a cover-up of what really happened? So whatever happened to the USS Eldridge after all of this? Well, unfortunately, it's not too interesting. Uh, it <laughs> Greece took ownership of it. Uh, when they took the USS Eldridge over there, they rechristened it to HS Leon. And uh, they used it in some Cold War era exercises, but then it was dismantled and sold for scrap metal during the 90s, the end. <laughs> so, Did they find so the, human parts in the walls? <laughs> not that I saw noticed. So. <laughs> Short and sweet. Uh-huh. The end. Yep. So the, Eldridge, the Eldridge, unfortunately, is no more. Or it, it still exists in, in scraps of metal. So, you know, if 
I'd be interested to find a piece. I'd be cool. Interested to find just just a piece of that. Just Just with a hand. (laughs) There's a fingernail in there. Truth. (laughs) Well, that was a wild tale. I want to know what happened to the brothers. Yeah, what? Where are they? I did too, and so I I want to come back to this again to do uh uh to do uh, some coverage over the Montauk project because I I get the feeling there's a lot more to say about that, and uh, hopefully we can learn more about the brothers' 1983 adventures. So we we shall see. Adventures in 1983 to the arcade <laughs> to the movie I... theater where things are in color. Yeah, I mean, could you imagine jumping, like, being in 1943, one moment, 1983, the next, of all the decades to jump from one to another? Yeah. That would have to be some jarring. I mean, some things would stay the same in, in, in a certain aspect. I think, yeah, the biggest thing that they would, would be shocked at is, like, video games, like, arcade games, because that was when they were really breaking out, and, and the music, the style of the cars, It'd be fashion. much now. It'd be way crazier for them to come from 1943 to today, where right. it's yeah, like, that'd hey, be upsetting. I you know, in my pocket, I carry a device that has more technology than what they took to the moon. By the way, they went to the moon in 1969, but I use it to make imaginary pigs launch into <laughs> imaginary walls. <laughs> okay, I, I guess I just I feel kind of dumb this episode, so. I, I still don't understand the, their ages because if you time travel 40 years, are they like slowly aging over that time? Because if they're in their 20s in 1943, pop up into existence in 1983, I would expect they'd still be in their 20s, in which the case reason, they would be 57 five years later. Yeah, the reason I didn't bring <laughs> that up is I am just as confused as you are. <laughs> okay. Like, <laughs> Cause, cause I was like, when am I dumb? Am I no, not so, understanding? So, because when you first brought it up, it's like, wait a minute, that doesn't math out between forty-three to eighty-three. I was thinking, it's like, well, maybe the time travel accounts for it, but then I don't know. Does, it, does anybody know time travel math? Yeah, come on, we need a professional. <laughs> well, wish granted, because here I am. So, all right, well, explain it. Yeah, all right, so. It. So let's say he was in his 20s, right? When he landed in 43. In in 40, he was Mm -hmm. was in his 20s in 43. And then then what did I say? In 88? Was was it 88? I said, let me try. He dropped into 1983, but in 1988, he came out after the Philadelphia experiment at age 57. uh, At at age 57. So the only explanation there is, is that when he eventually returned backwards, he may have, and I've, I want to say, because I've heard this story, and I've, um, and I've watched the movie. Um, actually, I watched the movie and the sequel. There's three movies about the Philadelphia Experiment. There's a Philadelphia Experiment, which came out that you referenced. There's a sequel, and then there was a remake in 2012. That, um, yeah. Uh, so, oh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry wait so they they went from 1943 dropped into 1983 and you're saying they went back yes i don't know well oh one if i'm remembering one of the stories correctly because in the movie they yeah in the movie in the movie he doesn't 
his brother does his brother like because in the movie it's also two brothers and they're slow in the movie if i recall they're they're like his hand is vanishing a little bit and then eventually um his brother in the movie disappears and in order to to put everything right because i think it's like creating like this wormhole that's going to destroy everything and and if i'm remembering this movie wrong i'm sorry i'm not i could pull it up on wikipedia but i'm i'm too lazy um <laughs> i remember that at the end of the film the main guy he's able to get back to the ship and he's wearing a protective suit um and he needs to destroy what's creating it and his brother is now back on the ship it's put him back on the ship and he destroys the generators or whatever it is that's causing it and it he says a goodbye to his brother because he wants to stay because he's fallen in love of course 1984 <laughs> film and so sure. he stays in 1984 and his brother goes back to 1943 um but from the stories that I've read and, and I've heard this in passing. So what it was is that he couldn't stay synced with 1983 so much. Like he was here for a while, but oh. then he would phase back, but he wouldn't phase back straight back to 1943. He would phase back. The time would equate to however long he was gone. So if he was here for for several years you know you know like if you're here for three years if, you know so what is that uh, 1986 then you'd go back to 1946 um okay but like more Ooh, or less you that... do you do remember that in our 2012 episode we did talk about a guy who was stuck in two timelines at the same time yeah, yeah. and so you know it oh is it him <laughs> but more or less like Sorry. if i remember correctly when he did eventually like phase back forever he didn't go straight back to 1943 i think he landed like several years later and then lived his life up to that point and so he was younger than he should have been so he was like 28 in like 1960 when he should have been you know at that point in his probably his 40s but or something like that but yeah i i just like that at least in the movie verse version of the story like we have this guy jump from the Philadelphia experiment to stranger things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, crossover episode <laughs> weird tends to connect. So I remember in the movie too, he's able to uh, get back by jumping over the side of the ship at the end. Cause that's what they did the first time. Cause it's oh. like at the beginning of the movie, the two brothers, what happens is they just jump They're They're freaking out. And yeah, if I remember correctly and they jump, off the ship and they land in yeah 1980 or 1984 whenever the movie supposed to take place and at the end of the film it's almost like i think i want to say he's tethered in some way so when he jumps off the ship they're able to pull him back where he was um and i want to say like at the end like his brother all old comes and visits him or something like that but i don't know so wild there there is a lot more to learn about our boy Al slash Edward. Um, and, and again, to to pursue his story further means going into the Montauk Project because that's where part two of his story oh, goes. Boy. That's why I want to venture into that in the near future. Um, if you go, because if you go look up our boy Al, 
uh, he there are various books and documentaries uh, involving him. Uh, there's actually one I, I wanted to watch for this episode, but I, it's it's not online, at least that I could find. Like if it's oh. it's one that's like you gotta go to go order the, the DVD off of Amazon or something. So, but uh, yeah, I'm very curious to see uh, uh, what what we have yet to learn about this guy. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to that. So to yeah. be continued. To mm-hmm. be continued. Well, that uh, concludes our latest episode of Little Podcast of Horrors. If you enjoyed, if you were this... aboard the USS Eldridge, <laughs> or if you were at Camp Hero, or if you have traveled through time between the two, we would love to hear from you. Or if you're just you know a regular time traveler that at one point bumped into somebody who was on the USS Eldridge, also traveling through time, and you want to share your story, let us know. You could email us at Little. Yeah, Podcast if you could Wars. violate your "don't tell anybody" rule just one time, just one time <laughs> for us. You can email we're, us at Little Podcast at Gmail. No one is it listening to this. Nobody gives a shit about us. We aren't even on their radar. And if we are, they're like, they're you might say we're invisible to their radar. (laughs) Oh damn, that was good. That was good. We Philadelphia this. Yeah, that's what we did. Alrighty. All right, and don't forget that we take donations. So Yeah. Please give. I don't pause. You want to keep doing All this. right. All righty. Well, then, until next time, James. What? Good job. Hail Ashtar. <laughs> Hail Ashtar. Hail Ashtar. I was like, come on, man. It's not, it's not hard. Just, oh, my gosh.